Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rusty Quill presents Below Decks, a thrice forgotten deep dive. Episode 5 Found Family in Queer POC Narrative. Hello, welcome to the fifth episode of Below Decks, where we dig into some of the research, questions, stories, and generally tangential, interesting things that went into making Trice Forgotten. I'm Nemo, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm the creator and lead writer of the series. This is coming out after episode six of the podcast, Lay Day. So we've just delved more into Alesti's past with Anne and Gammon, and we've had the ship's crew taking care of an ill and ailing Alesti's. Fittingly, today we'll be talking about queer found families of color. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Helen Gould. Could you introduce yourself with your pronouns and tell us a bit about what you do slash your relationship to the show? Hi, um, my name is Helen. My pronouns are he, she and they in no particular order. Okay, my relationship to the show is I do play a guard briefly. Hell yeah, (laughs) strongest role. (laughs) Vital, vital, vital to the yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that guard later. Oh, when we get to them, oh my god, such a character arc. I'm also Rusty Quill's head of inclusion, and on the side, I am a writer, editor, sensitivity consultant, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. So yeah, today we're going to have a hopefully 
fairly fun <laughs> question about <laughs> queer found families of color i say fun with that voice because we started talking about our topics beforehand and we were like "Ooh, how messy is this gonna get so <laughs> i guess the first like framing question is helen do you have some pieces of media with queer found families of color slash doesn't have to be of color just yet either or both queer found families that you particularly enjoy watching listening reading i mean i am i am fairly deep into our flag means death fandom Mm -hmm. at the moment yeah which i'll definitely call queer found family some of color some of not Mm. does that make grammatical sense it doesn't matter (laughs) Um, that that is very on topic because that's pirates as well yes it is very on topic and there are lots of different relationship both romantic and platonic in that show that i really really appreciate okay spoilers for our flag means death Mm -hmm. obviously there is steed and ed there is lucius and pete there's olu and jim Mm. And everyone else has lots of... Dip- <laughs> My head just went, there's the Scottish guy and his seagull. <laughs> but I don't think that counts. Um, that's a queer found family if I've ever seen one. <laughs> he takes care of those seagulls like family, more yes. than family. Yes, it's true. I think one of the things I would like to raise about that is that one of the very interesting things about Our Flag Means Death is that people are in different genres, essentially. Mm. Like, Mm. Blackbeard enters and is sort of part of sort of a typical dark pirate drama kind of thing, Mm. but very quickly adapts to Steed and the rest of that crew's more sort of sitcom kind of ways. And then when Izzy turns up, Izzy cannot adapt to that. So Izzy is always trying to drag Ed back into dark drama, cutting off people's <laughs> toes kind of thing. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. I guess because as well, I'm th- I'm, I'm thinking of this like completely on the fly. I think that is an interesting contrast because there also is these days often a tension between sort of light and fluffy queer narratives Mm. and darker, more complex, nuanced queer narratives. Yeah. So it's interesting that we have both of those really happening in that show, though obviously very heavily leading towards comedy. I don't know if that answers your question at all in the slightest. Yeah, it was, Um. uh, (laughs) what queer fan families are you currently thinking about? So that's, yeah, you answered it. I I really like off like means death, I mean, obviously. And one thing that I really liked about it is the, like... The side friendships of all of the, like, side characters, Mm. mostly the characters of colour who are, like, supporting each other. One thing that I have liked about Our Flag Means Death is that just as the the queerness is never the butt of the joke, the race conversations have never been the butt of the joke, Mm -hmm. or or whiteness is the butt of the joke in all of those scenes. And the, like, pyramid scheme episode. (laughs) I really liked that. It was so good. And it was just, I mean, I was talking to my friend about it and I was like, there are multiple black male characters who talk to each other and support each other. Like, that's also not something that you see in things. Like, 
it reminds me of when Brooklyn Nine-Nine was coming out and Stephanie Beatrice, who plays Rosa Diaz, was talking about how she heard that Melissa Fumero had been already cast as Amy Santiago. Mm. And she was like, oh, well, I'm not going to get the role then because there's already mm. one Latina actress in the show. So there can't be two of us in the <laughs> yeah. main cast. And yeah, the idea that, yeah, the token thing of like, mm. oh, there's one of us in the show. So that means that there can't be any others of us because there can't be plurality in ideas of what Asianness means or blackness means between huge communities of people. Yeah. Have you have you watched any of um, the L Word Generation Q? I haven't. Okay. All right. I just finished watching the second season of that in the past couple mm. of days, and that's really interesting because it's still it's still problematic in some ways, mm-hmm. but it is also clearly an attempt to address some of the much more problematic things from the original L Word series. Mm. Again, I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't, but I've heard interesting mixed things about it. I mean, I feel like it comes into that thing again of what you were saying about like what queer media like exists of like Mm. whether it has to be like irreverential comedy or super serious A24 film. I mean, the interesting thing about the L word is that it's nice it's it's more of a soap opera ah, than anything but it changes depending on what season you're looking at so in the original L word the first season is really like it feels really indie and interesting and kind of like mm. a cult tv show and then once that came out I think they probably got a lot more funding and stuff they commissioned a whole theme song which I hate but is really catchy <laughs> <laughs> But the LED is set in LA. Okay. And the vast majority of the principal cast is white mm. in that original season. There's Bet, who is mixed race. There's Kit, her six her sister, who is not mixed race, um, who is um played by Pam Greer. Mm. There's Carmen, who is Latina. There's the person Bet has an affair with Chantel, maybe? is what she's called. Um, There's Tasha, who's black. Mm. And I think that's almost it. Of of, of a series that went, like, it went for six seasons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They also had, um, uh, they attempted a story about, like, uh, transition and transness and... um, had this character, Max, just treated awfully, like very, very, very badly. And he ends up getting pregnant and it's a whole horrible thing. And it's like, the point is, there's a lot of issues with it. Mm. And I think that the reboot with Generation Q very much tries to address that because they again have a trans man character played by a trans guy, Leo Cheng, I think his name is. Mm. And some of the main relationships are between women of colour. And there's a lot more sort of consideration of that. And there are entire conversations in Spanish or in Arabic, I think, because there are, there are, a, whole, mm. there are a whole two Persian characters. <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh that also I think counts for me despite the various kind of problems with it Mm. in the second season it does start to really tackle with some of the ideas around race because some of the characters from the initial run 
uh, in are in this as well. So Bet is still there, mm. and she has uh, a daughter called Angie who is much more sort of visibly black than Bet is. And they mm. actually have a conversation about this, about how this means that, that they travel the world in very different ways. Mm. I think Bet says something like, you know, I, I understand that, you know, white people sometimes assume that I'm Italian or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Angie's donor is a dark-skinned black man. And there's this whole conversation about how Angie wants to meet him. Mm. And that's important to her to see people who do actually look more like her and Mm. anyway there's a lot of really interesting in-depth stuff there and you know there's literal family dynamics going on there because we're following Angie who was born in the first run and everyone was like oh my gosh she's going to grow up with a whole host of like queer mums it's going to be great Mm. and she has turned out pretty well I'm very proud Mm. of Angie that's I'm I'm glad (laughs) (laughs) I I, I was thinking about the intergenerational thing Um, yes and I think it's someone pointed out that within like the first seven minutes of the first episode of Trice Forgotten you've already got two queer black people talking about their queerness Mm -hmm. as slightly tangential to the story but not really and they are of the generation above quote unquote our protagonists so it's Baker and Elizabeth both talking about yeah and how Alestes has been brought up in a very queer environment of the, I mean, the stereotype of a, a, a found family narrative is that an orphan is brought up among like a ragtag group of people, <laughs> but that is how Alestes was brought up. And um, in Lady, we started to see, yeah, Anne and Gammon's part of that. Mm-hmm. And how that's often I don't know, like, in in Trice Forgotten, it's a kind of point of contention for Alestes. It's not always a positive thing, or that she's had multiple influences from quite a few people who consider themselves her father figure, Mm. and that she has to deal with that. Yeah, I, I think, for me, the idea of queer found family also comes from this desire to see queer older people taking care of younger queer people Mm. because that was broken because of the AIDS crisis and is continuing to be broken by this like idea that certain demographics of queer people have to stay among themselves and Mm. and we've kind of shifted this idea of like hegemony to like if you're this then you have to stay with this group of people and so when yeah, there's no real path, I guess, or we've broken the path for older queer people to talk to younger queer people. And so I'm like saying this and realizing at the same time that I'm like, oh yeah, it's nice that Alastis at least does have, like queerness is not something that Alastis has to worry about because the people that she grew up in and around gave her that knowledge. I feel like maybe part of what you're saying there is that if we're relating this to like real life and modern times and mm. such, I feel like there is a big gap of understanding from maybe some of sort of the younger queer generation about how different things were even in the 90s mm. to how they are now. And obviously we've still got so, so far to go. Mm. But I cannot imagine having explicit queer relationships in kids cartoons when I was growing up 
Um, yeah. That 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 would just be unheard of, especially um, and when I was at school, I think Section 28 was still in effect for at least some of the time I was at school. And that is where um, teachers were not allowed to tell you about the gays mm. because obviously children could not be the gays. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That would be unheard of. Yeah. But obviously I knew since I was in like year five and I had mm. a crush on my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it is also interesting thinking about how in real life as well, like you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but mm. I certainly did when I was at school. Whereas like the people who are, you know, sort of misfits from mm. the typical what's seen as norm do tend to gravitate together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think what I'm trying to say is it was rough. It was rough growing up. Um, in the 90s <laughs> mm. even though that was only 20 years ago uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah we've come such a long way like it was such a big deal for people to come out back then yeah and I, it, it still is a big deal for people to come out but it's much more common mm. yeah I was talking to my cousin who has just turned 18 and like I came out as trans to my family and to be honest, it wasn't like super horrific or anything. I was mm. fairly lucky. Um, but I know that her parents are very, uh, were the most like on the fence about it. And my cousin has just started using she and they pronouns on Instagram and Snapchat and all of the TikTok. And I'm not that old, but I sound so old when I'm like, and the TikTok. <laughs> uh, and, and I was like, oh, you know, if you ever want to have a conversation about gender, if you ever want to like, you know, if you ever need some advice or anything, I've been out to our family for like 10 years now, like can fully support you. And they were like, all right. <laughs> and I was like, if, when I was your age, I would have killed to have someone in our family who was also trans. Like, I don't, or, or non-binary. And I'm like, I'm so glad that that is the case for them, that they were like, oh, it's so au fait now <laughs> to mm. be non-binary. Like, I'm only 27. And for me, like, the huge shift between growing up, there is that huge shift that has happened even in the couple of years just below me. Yeah. I get what you mean. I am I am so, so happy for the younger generation. But there's also a part of me that's like, hold on to this mm. because it can be taken away and people are trying to take it away. Like, And, and so <laughs> if you don't know that you have to fight for it, then you can easily lose it. Yeah. And like when I was big here, things to say on this episode, I was trying to think <laughs> of like queer fan families and... and how that was influential, I guess, to my writing. I was like, that's surely something that might come up. And I was like, what were my favorite films? I was a kid and it was Lilo and Stitch. And I uh -huh. really loved Lilo and Stitch because it was about two siblings who had to care for each other. And then a whole group of people who were older than them <laughs> but were alien to their way of life. We're trying to help them survive, but we're just so clueless. And, and so it was a lot of like give and take. And a lot of the like, you know, Lilo and Nani having to grow up too early and be allowed to be children or being allowed to have fun because they gradually come to trust that these people around them are genuinely there to take care of them mm. and feel like the the idea of allowing yourself to 
be taken care of is a huge thing. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> I think so. And I think I think that's a really important because I I don't know if you can ever feel completely taken care of if you are constantly keeping like a big secret from a parental figure. Mm. It's like there's there's a barrier there that your parental figure doesn't know is there. Mm. And you have to hold that by yourself. Mm. And I think that there must be like such a freedom in not having to do that or not feeling like you have to do that. Yeah. And I like to imagine that the characters in Trice Forgotten, most of them have never had to bear the weight of being in the closet in a Mm. certain way, because they do live in in this world that I've created for them where being out is not something that they really have to worry about. Mm. One, because I didn't feel like that was particularly interesting to rehash. Two, because, you know, expanding the idea that it was really 19th century scientists creating the idea that you know queerness was bad mm-hmm. there were other things as well buddhism was also a big influence in in east asia about like creating these sexual roles as well so oh but fluidity and gender and sexuality but when you do grow up in fairly traumatic places like Alestes has mm. the idea of like also losing people that you suddenly now care about is a huge thing I would say and allowing yourselves to love them and like forming attachments is very scary and I feel like that's also something that doesn't really get talked about because most family narratives in the like cis het kind of way even though they might talk about like families breaking down you still have that like oh well they're your blood you you have have to you should you will always love them in a certain way but Mm. it's so i feel like it's so much scarier the concept of losing somebody that you really really do care about but is not (laughs) uh, contractually obliged to (laughs) always love you back (laughs) yeah yeah i think that (laughs) There is never any guarantee of a person loving you for always and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, But I think that queer people have to deal with that a lot earlier and with a lot more um, uh, seriousness than Mm. cishet people often do. Mm. Like, the idea of having to go no contact or low contact with one's own family... Mm. just because of something about who you are that you can't change. Mm. I think it's a very painful one because a lot of the narratives that you see around sort of mainstream family dramas, Mm. you have to have actually done something or your parent has to have actually done something to have driven you away. Mm. It's not about an inherent part of your being. Mm. I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say there, but I guess I'm trying to say that there's like a... Uh, a, a fragility, I think, often in terms of being queer in a family. And I mm. think that's one of the reasons why queer found family is such a big thing. Yeah. Because yeah. I would actually say the opposite of... I mean, you said uh, contractually obliged to love you, but, but, <laughs> but like they're, they're not. Yeah. And to me, it actually feels safer to depend on people who are, who are not related to me because it means that they chose to know me. 
Mm. And they chose to enter into this relationship with me. And so there is something that feels stronger to me. They're not doing it out of duty. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I always find it... It's, it's interesting. And I, I feel like the, these things do heighten our attachment to the idea of the queer found family. Mm. I saw a Tumblr post recently um, by a user called Quasi-Normalcy. And it reads... It probably goes without saying, but found family trope is so popular because so very many people are so terribly, terribly lonely. Um, and I, yeah, it made me oof quite hard. <laughs> but the idea of having to find people who will make your life less lonely is unfortunately something that many, if not all, queer people of color can understand or empathize with yeah and someone was talking about how like in ballroom culture in the 80s in in new york so mostly black queer people in 80s in new york creating houses for Mm -hmm. each other and becoming mothers becoming fathers becoming siblings of other queer people who didn't have a home anymore and so making those houses for each other and those things can only exist when something as terrible as every one of these people have lost their family exists. And so, yeah, I, I feel like the queer fan family does um, speak to a lot of queer people because it's probably something that we've already started to do in some way Yeah, with our friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I did see... <laughs> I was on um, a walk with my friends the other day for a forest and um, <laughs> we have a friend who is very like, he, he tries to be very serious. So he's very like serious, only wears monochromatic colors. And, but we know that he's soft on the inside. And so <laughs> we started saying that he has whimsy in his heart. And since then, I've just started being like, oh, we love you and we love your whimsy. And it just makes me really uh, soft and warm, I guess, thinking about those kind of moments in my life where I have these friends where I can be like, wow, I feel so much joy hanging around with these people and I feel like I could rely on them for anything. And we'll see with the Trice Forgotten characters. They're not there yet. They're not uh, at coolly <laughs> giving each other whimsy, but they're certainly, uh, that's certainly, hopefully, where they're headed. Hopefully, I say as if I'm not writing the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Characters often surprise me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you have reminded me, I can't remember her name, unfortunately. But there was lesbian woman during the AIDS crisis. So mm. basically, a lot of the time, men were sort of forcibly outed to their families once they contracted AIDS. And that was how they got sort of disowned and abandoned. And there was this one woman who, who buried them all, basically. Yeah. And I, I think about her a lot. Yeah. And I think about... There are, just, there are lots and lots of stories about the lesbian community looking after gay men during that time yeah and having to step up because nobody else would yeah because you know nurses would refuse to touch them or because funeral homes would refuse to have them yeah i think as well about um have you seen it's a sin yes I have. yes that also mm. makes me think about queer found family as well because that's literally what they 
do yeah in that house the like solidarity mm-hmm. and the the decision that we are going to care about each other yes especially because other people aren't and that gets really frustrating when it's really hard to do yes i'm thinking about tries forgotten now i'm not thinking about aids crisis that yes felt like i need to be clear about that <laughs> yeah. but yeah that <laughs> that people are still people and can be very frustrating lsds um but that we are going to decide to care about each other which is what's so frustrating about a uh, rant coming about the lgb alliance in the uk Ugh. who are like they call themselves a charity and they call themselves like sticking up for lesbian and, and gay rights but are like purely a, a fascist yeah hate group and the idea like they they really are just trying to tear people apart and Mm -hmm. they did a study recently and they basically were trying to force trans people to start hate messaging about lesbian women and loads of lesbian women were like no (laughs) like you don't speak for us lgb alliance go away it makes me so emotional when i do see cisgender lesbian women speaking up for transgender rights and I shouldn't be like I shouldn't be emotional about the fact that like there is inter-community alliance and strength but anytime I do see like especially older white women because unfortunately that is also the demographic of like turfery (laughs) yeah exactly that I'm like how have we got to the point where it's surprising to me when queer people stick up for each other. Yeah. There's always been, like I say, there's always been sort of intercommunity tensions. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that's most frustrating about the LGB alliance and all their various sock puppets and followers and that is that there's really not that many of them. They just yeah. are yeah. very loud and post a lot. There are way, way, way more of us than there are of them. Yeah. And, you know, I mean... It, Maybe it's easy for me to say because I'm not, despite being sort of gender fluid slash non-binary, I don't think of myself as trans. Mm. And I, I, I'm i still at that stage where I'm like, do is, is that something that I can, is, am, I, am I under this umbrella? Is this something that I can say? But um, I'm, I'm not a person who is at the forefront of being threatened mm. by all of this. My small caveat here is the same thing I said in a previous episode, which is there is space for anyone who wants to call themselves transgender. There is not a wow. limited amount of places. So if you <laughs> would like to come under the umbrella term, you can and you should, but you shouldn't like, you know, but you don't have to. But yes, um, that is my caveat for anyone at any point who is like, oh, I like I don't know whether I'm taking up space and it's like it's not like a one in one out system you don't have to shoot someone in order to be allowed to use the the, the name it's not like a it, physical space yeah exactly yeah. and you know you can always decide that you don't like the word and all of those kind of things so yeah there's nothing wrong with the word yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. just the experiences associated with it are not ones that I have Mm, to me yeah. and so it doesn't feel like something I can claim yeah oh this is one of those things where it's like I would be saying exactly the same thing to you if you were having these questions but well, when it's me it's different yeah exactly yeah yeah I can't remember what we were talking about before but I think I think the upshot was turf spad 
and less relevant than they think they are. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it wasn't in the last episode, but in the the episode before that, we've um, finally introduced Inez, who yes. is <laughs> every single episode that Raf and I do about Below Decks. We're always like, oh, we want to talk about this character, but we can't. And then the first episode that Inez is here, <laughs> Raf isn't in the episode. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to talk about Inez, who is in contemporary parlance, 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 whatever, French, gender fluid, mm-hmm. gender queer, uses he, she, they, any pronouns. And <laughs> one of their first lines when they arrive is, hey, we're all family here, right? Mm. And Siva has no understanding <laughs> of what that means. Yeah. Because Siva has never... Siva doesn't comprehend, I guess, queerness. <laughs> My little egg, <laughs> who... Um, hasn't really conceptualized his own queerness yet i would say or i mean yeah whereas inez coming in strong with the like (laughs) if i had the word trans i would be using it and again the crew of Anetta wanson respect inez's gender identity while also hating inez's personality (laughs) i really like inez i haven't listened to episode six Mm. but i did hear episode five and I love hearing someone be so self-confident in themselves. Yeah. And I am very interested to see what what their relationship with Siva, like what what influence they might have. <laughs> Getting Inez's sticky little fingers all over Siva. <laughs> Hell yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I I think actually on an episode of Enthusiasm that I was on with you um, about anime, I was talking about one of my favorite anime, just called Barakamon. And it's not an explicitly queer genre, Mm. but it's a genre where a self-hating young person gets like uh, exiled to the countryside because they're a city slicker. And they (laughs) meet a community of people, community in the small town kind of way, who care for each other and care for this new person and city slicker is like oh god i've only lived in cities my entire life why is everyone being so nice to me (laughs) and as someone who's only grown up in london my entire life and who genuinely does get surprised anytime i go north of london and people are like hi how are you doing and i'm like who are you why are you being nice to me i feel like that's also an influence in trice forgotten where i'm like hmm people who are nice to you for no reason other than human beings started off as tribes who uh, needed to be part of a community to survive discuss yeah i actually (laughs) i have this pal who he often says to me you're very understanding (laughs) and in fact my boyfriend often says that as well and i'm like Mm. i don't I don't know how else to be. Mm. And it's it's ironic that the fact that someone is telling me that I'm very understanding is something that I don't understand. Because, like, I, I feel like it's... It, it, to me, mm. being understanding is absolutely the default. Yeah. It is incredibly easy for me to put myself in someone else's shoes. And so it always baffles me when people don't do that. Yeah. 
There was someone said something the other day, and I can't remember the exact quote, and I can't find it. It was something like a study that was done where if you are questioning something, you can't be judgmental because there is something in your brain. Like if your brain is in learning mode and querying mode, it prevents you from being judgmental. And so the idea that you can always be, I really wish that I had the quote because it really, for me, was kind of like epitomized, trice forgotten, which is the characters who question things, but in a like, I'm questioning the world around me because I want to learn more about the world around me. I'm Mm. curious. You can't be judgmental if you're being curious, I think was what Uh. it was. And if you are curious about the people around you and you are, attempting to understand them like and you don't have to understand someone to be empathetic but all of those kind of things like you are opening your mind to the fact that your mind is continually growing Mm. whereas if you are consistently in a state of like stoic static judgmental what i know about the world is what the world is Mm. then you're not you're not being curious and so you're not growing in a certain way and I just thought like oh I really like that because you can see in Trice Forgotten the characters have stopped being curious and the characters who who are yeah and that does make a lot of sense because if you think you've got everything sorted out why would you ask any questions yeah yeah (laughs) for sure I guess I am always very aware that I do not know everything. Yeah. I mean, it's that thing of education as well, right? Like, mm. the higher you go in education, and I'm always feeling this, uh, the, the idea that, like, the more you know, the more you know you don't know, and mm. the more you realise that, oh, God, there's so many people out there with so many other interesting ideas, and, like, yeah, you just, it's always that big fish, small pond yeah. conundrum. And that's actually, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, a really lovely <laughs> There's thing. There's always something else. Yeah, and this world is so full of possibilities and potential, guys, even though we've talked about the turfs and we've talked about all of the bad <laughs> queer things that have been happening and we've lamented the youth having a world that we didn't grow up in. Um, <laughs> it is really great and... Queer fan families who are really excited about talking about snails that they found in a rock pool because they feel safe with each other and they're not going to mock each other for feeling enthusiastic and excited and happy. Mm. (laughs) Unless you have anything else you would like to say on that point, I feel like that's a fairly nice place to end this episode. I will say that you reminded me of a quote that I recently retweeted. Well, not a quote, it was just a tweet. Um, (laughs) It was a girl, not to be rude, but the world is so abundant. No shade, but despite the suffering, life is a tremendous gift. And that's something that I feel very much. That is an amazing place to leave (laughs) this episode. So, Helen, if people wanted to find you for more thoughts about your beautiful mind. Oh, and I forgot to say, also the best Rusty Quiller. Where can they <laughs> Where can they find you? People can find me on Twitter at electo101. That is A-L-E-C-T-O-101. Though mostly all I do there is retweet. So if you actually want to hear from me, you should go to my Twitch, which is twitch.tv forward slash Helen Rosamond where I'm currently doing Bear and Breakfast but hopefully we'll get back to Mass Effect soon Amazing, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us, so that's it from me, Nemo, and goodbye from Helen, bye, and we'll see you next time below decks (laughs) 
Price Forgotten is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Like 4.0 International License. The series is created by Nemo Martin and directed by Rafaela Marcus and was edited by Lori Ann Davis and Catherine Ranella. Price Forgotten is produced by Ian Gears, Lori Ann Davis and production manager Natasha Johnston with executive producers Alexander J Newell and April Sumner. To subscribe, view associated materials or join our Patreon, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us online. Tweet us at the Rusty Quill. Visit us on Facebook or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.